Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right. Well, turn with me in your Bible to 1 John. Tonight, by God's grace, we will finish this book. That was a mixed, that was sort of, I don't even know what that, how to read that. Oh, good. Oh, no, I don't know. Tonight, what we want to do is we have three more verses to cover. And what we want to do is rewind, remember, and then state our resolve. Rewind, remember, and then state our resolve. If you'll remember, at the very beginning of this book, we stated that it was written in Ephesus, which was a city, of a very thriving city in Asia Minor, not unlike our own city here in Albuquerque. It's a center, a hub of a lot of activity here in New Mexico, but so is Ephesus. Well, the church began to grow and become very dynamic. And as it did so, it got a name. And some 60 years after Jesus had gone to the cross, near the time of this writing, we see him stating to the church some very unique things. Things that are affirming yet startling. Just a few years after this gospel or this recollection was written. Look with me at Revelation chapter 2. It's always good to hear the sound of rustling pages. Verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you've persevered and have patience and labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. These are all very positive, affirming things that Jesus has to say to this church. But notice these next words. Verse 4. Nevertheless... I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Father, we've come to you for a brief moment of time. Come together as your family. We love your word. We love worshiping together. And we know, Lord, that it's an honor to be in this place, to be in a place of security, a place of blessing. We see all the work that you're doing in our midst, Lord. But, Lord, we know that it's based only upon your power and our commitment to you. And so, Lord, as we review what we've learned in this book tonight... We ask that those truths would be brought to life once again in our minds, stirred up so that we would never forget, so that you would never have to come to us, Lord, as a church and ask us to repent 
and remove our lampstand. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, before I forget, a little commercial here as we get into the the message. Next week we will have communion. So be sure and invite everyone to come out and let's take communion together. Okay, that's the commercial. Let's go back to the message. Three things that he tells this church to do, primarily because the church has lost its first love. He says, you need to remember, you need to repent, and then do what you used to do. If we fail to apply all that we learn, we always run the risk of losing ground as far as our witness in this world is concerned. You know the words of Paul when he said, I discipline my body, I beat my body, I bring it under submission, lest while I have preached to others, in the end I become shipwrecked or a castaway in the end. I become disqualified. Me, the guy who used to preach to people. And so... The witness that we have in this world and the power and the activity and the blessing of the Holy Spirit is something that is unique. It carries with it momentum and it has gravity as it goes and does the will of God and the mission that God intended it. That's what we are in this church. We're all a part of God's mission here on the earth. However, I don't think that we're much different than the church at Ephesus. I don't think we're any better, and I don't think that we're any worse. In fact, I think they remind me a lot of our church. They had good doctrine. They tested false prophets. They had a deep abiding love for God. But yet, as you go along and you begin to prosper in the faith, you lose sight of the very reason that you came to faith in God in the first place. You remember that? Some of you, it was a broken heart where you said, I'm so full of sin, I'm so dirty, and Jesus has offered me forgiveness of sins. Others came because the love of God constrained you and drew you in, and you said, oh, I've never known love like that before. But once you've experienced it, there's nothing quite like it. And so your first experience with the Lord, you just say, I love Him, and you want to share the gospel with everyone. Well, the danger is is that as we move along, We become very religious. And religious is not necessarily bad as opposed to not being religious. It just means that we learn where to sit in church. We learn how to sing the songs. We learn what bumper stickers to put on our car. What bumper stickers to cover up or take off. And we learn to behave like Christians. But it seems like to me that the real issue here is this deep, abiding love and relationship that Jesus desires with not only the church corporately, but individually with us. We see that in the relationship of Adam and Eve with God last week in our study. Well, as we rewind, we're going to cover, by God's grace, 15 salient points in this book. Now, In order to do so, we're not going to be able to cover every passage of Scripture. So as we rewind back to the beginning of 1 John, we may fast forward to a few spots. But I want to give you a little bit of framework as we go forward. In fact, if you have a pen or a pencil or maybe a really sharp ink-filled fingernail, I don't know what you, you may have with you. 
I want you to take them out and write these things down if you, if you have something available as we go through. Because as we go through these points, they'll be divided into two categories. Faith and relationship. Jude tells us to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith that is spoken of that we speak about in, as, as preaching the word and we speak about here in church is not just an intellectual assent, but it encompasses all that we believe and know about God. It is this faith, this trust, this truth, this Treasure that has been delivered to humanity has been delivered to the church for safekeeping. And in that faith, we learn a lot. Secondly, we have the relationship. And dividing these things into relationship really brings us to a healthy understanding. Because as we go through this passage, we've learned a lot about history, about grammar, and about theology. But the way that you and I should go through our own personal Bible study, this should be an example for us tonight, is this way. I'm asking myself questions about this passage. What does it teach me about God and my relationship with Him? What does it teach me about myself and my relationship with those around me? And what does it teach me about life? So we'll divide it into two parts. Faith what it teaches me about my relationship with God and understanding of His kingdom, and then relationship, my relationship with God and my relationship with others. All right, let's rewind rather quickly to chapter 1 of 1 John. First on the list is we note in the first four verses that this is a reasonable faith and a real relationship. A reasonable faith and a real relationship. And here's the key phrase. What we have heard, what we have seen, and what we have touched or handled with our hands. That is to say this. The faith that you and I have in the Lord is not just a leap of faith. Oh, you Christians, you you have so much faith and belief in the beyond. But actually, all of our faith and understanding and belief in God is grounded in reasonable truth, reasonable ideas. And when it comes to relationship, it's not a false relationship, a contrivancy that you and I make up just because we need to believe that there's a God or some kind of psychological fulfillment. It is a real, vibrant faith. It is something that the disciples heard, they saw, and they experienced. And so do we. Each one of us can say that. All right. Let's fast forward just a little bit to verse 5. Not only do we have a reasonable faith and a real relationship, but it is an illuminating faith. Illumination is... Bringing light. If we turned out all of these lights in here, we would say that it's dark. When you turn on the light, there's illumination. It's an illuminating faith and a healthy relationship. The key phrase here in this passage is God is light. That is, He, as to His absolute essence and who He is, dwells, as Scripture tells us, in unapproachable perfection and light. However, not only that, 
but it is an intellectual and moral light that shines into the dark crevices of this world and shines a light on the problems that we have, but it also illuminates our path. It not only exposes sin, but it forces a response. It forces a response from the believer as well as from the unbeliever. And there are three basic responses here if you look with me at verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his truth is not in us. The first response to light is self-deception. If you don't believe the truth of the light that is given you, you have to live a life of self-deception and reject it. The second response is confession. You say, okay, Lord, you've got me in your sights. I see it. I've blown it. I'm done. I'll, I'll do what you say. And the other is this simple rebellion against God, against the truth. All right, moving on. Chapter 2. Chapter 2, in the first few verses, we see that it is a providential faith and a gracious relationship. The faith that we have was not contrived, as we mentioned before, in our own minds, but it was provided for us by the actions and the nature and the love of Jesus Christ himself. In verse 1, we mentioned earlier in our study that he mentions this word advocate, and in verse 2, propitiation. The word advocate there is parakletos, which means lawyer or counselor or one who stands alongside, who comes to help in the process. We have an advocate with the Father. And here's the idea. You have an advocate with God, the Father, and you have one who propitiates. The word there in Greek is hilosmos. And propitiation means this. Payment appropriate for the amount due. Payment appropriate for the amount due. So this business of salvation is taken back to the person of Jesus Christ himself in a real providential faith and a gracious relationship. Here's the, here's the picture. You and I were in the, in the dump and we didn't have much value to anyone. But God valued us so much that he came along, saw us, purchased us, cleaned us up and gave us a completely new identity. And then from now, from that point on, stands as an advocate and a lawyer, one who pleads our case continually throughout eternity. It's all by his doing and by his gracious hand. All right, look at verse 3 of chapter 2. Verse 3 through 11, we see that it is not only a providential faith, but it's an active faith and a visible relationship. In this particular portion, he contradistincts the two ideas of doing and saying. 
You know, it's real easy to stand around and talk about being a Christian, isn't it? In fact, I was at a, the youth detention center last night visiting with a, a friend of mine who um, is spending some time there. And uh, one of the interesting things that he brought out to me is he said, you know, Dave, man, it's really easy to sit right here and talk about it and to read the Bible and to hang out and pray with friends. But when I, when I leave this place and I head back out into the world to actually do the work and do what I believe, he said, man, that's where the real test is. And I would agree with that. That's where the real hard work is. It's an active faith that is real and it's a real relationship that is visible with the Lord. Verse 6 says this, He who says he abides or dwells in him, speaking of Jesus or God, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. You know, the old saying that we've heard so often is it's not enough to talk the talk, but you have to... You could write your own country song right now. You guys would be really good. We can get together afterwards around the piano and we'll sort of work out the chords. All right. The fifth thing that we notice in our journey through this passage is in verse 12 through 14. Verse 12 through 14 lets us know that our faith is a progressive faith and a developing relationship. As we mentioned earlier on in our study through this book, there are four stages mentioned here in this passage in the Christian life. Four stages in the Christian's character development. The first stage we see in verse 12 is the stage of little children or babies. We mentioned before it's the Greek word technion and it means those who are little born ones. The second is in verse 13. We have learners or paideon. It also uses the term here in your Bible as uh, little children. But the Greek phrase here is paideon, which means the age of instruction or development, a time of learning. The fourth stage of development in this progressive faith is the power and the the might and the passion that belongs to those of youth and of young age. It mentions here in verse 13 and 14, the young men. And the word that is used here speaks of those who are at a prime in their life, which have power and a desire to go out and reach the world and to change the world as we know it. But then the final stage, all the way from birth to learner to passionate disciple and follower, the final stage is that of wisdom and the Father. Uh, Patres, it is the stage of maturity where we become a great value to the body of Christ. The reason that this is brought up is that the certain stage of life that we find ourselves in, sometimes we're dissatisfied with that, aren't we? My uh, son, who was nine yesterday, turned ten today. And I don't know if you've spent much time around small kids, but uh, we tend to get very excited about birthdays. And he especially was excited because in his mind he had dreamed of a set of drums. Well, I don't know if you've ever put a set of drums together 
in the middle of the night when everybody's asleep. It usually takes, I'll tell you, if you start maybe at 9 o'clock, it'll take you about 3 o'clock in the morning. That's just a rough estimate. But there is a, a sense that, oh, if I'm, when I'm 10, dad, when I'm 10, I'll become like this. I'll be this way. I'll have these certain things. I'll do this. And in reality, the place where you and I are right now in our growth process and development with the Lord is the absolute best place to be. The question is, am I willing at this point of growth where I am with the Lord to glorify him with what I have, the resources that I possess and who I am right now in the middle of this life? Early on, you'll say, oh, I wish I was older and had more privileges. When you're older, you'll say, oh, I wish I was younger and had more ability. No, each one of us plays a very unique particular and important role in this progressive and developing faith. All right. Chapter 2, verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 15 says this. Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We notice by this particular section that it is a jealous faith that we have. On two sides. We know that scripture tells us that God is a jealous God. And the love that he has for us or watches over us with is that of a jealous love. Now there needs to be a distinction here made. The word here that is used for jealous is not speaking about the type of jealousy that we associate with some type of insecurity. You know, somebody will always ask, who are you talking to? Where were you? You were supposed to be here 15 seconds ago. I can't trust you for anything. (laughs) Who are you talking to on the phone? A telemarketer. Aha! You know. No. It's not that kind of jealousy. It's not speaking that, it's not saying that God has some type of insecurity or overreacts to our relationships with others. The jealous love that is spoken of here and the jealous faith that he has for us and we should have for him is the type of idea that I will watch over this, I will care for this, and I will carefully monitor and watch my relationship with the living God. God has a jealous love over us in that he doesn't want us to give our attention and love to anyone else because as we do so as human beings and we give our hearts and our minds and our emotions to things of this world, it produces in us death, destruction, and alienation from God. So he watches over us with a very jealous, careful love. This jealous, careful love also speaks of an exclusive relationship. Jealous love and an exclusive relationship. He says, do not love the world nor the things of the world, for this is what's in the world. He says, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. The word that is used there for lust is epithumia, and it means to have a strong desire for. And it can be a good desire if it's placed in the right direction. But in this 
instance. He's saying the lust of the flesh is those desires that automatically are disastrous and lead us away from the presence of God. The lust of the eyes is all of the enticements that we see in this world that lead us away from God and His standards and His goodness and the love that He so willingly, openly shares with us. The pride of life is... That sense of life, that, that innate nature that we have as sinners, being in rebellion against God, that constantly shakes its fist at God and says, I'm going to do it my way. Or you, you, you sing that song, I did it my way. That's like a tragedy in the end. If you go to the judgment, you stand before God, and that's the song that's playing for you. Whoa. (laughs) Bad scene. But yet, this is all that the world encompasses. And the world that is spoken here, the cosmos, is the world that stays in a state of rebellion against God. That's what it is. All right. The seventh thing on our list, we find in verse 18 through 29. It is a divisive faith. Look with me at verse 18. He says, Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be manifested that they were none of us. Now, Again, I want to restate this from the beginning. This does not mean that if a brother or sister goes to another church in town or moves off to another place, that we stand around and say, "Uh uh-huh, it proved it. They weren't one of us. Well, where did they go? Well, they went to another church. Well, is that church of us? Well, yes, it is. Oh, okay. You have to make a distinction. What he's saying is that there were those in the midst who enjoyed at the beginning for a while the whole idea of Christianity and the study of the Word and the fellowship of the saints, but there became a point, or there came a point, where they realized is that this is not for me. And I will believe other things. I will follow after other ideas, after other gods. And he's saying here, our relationship with the world becomes a very divisive point. What does it say in Matthew 13? Father against child, mother against child, family member against family member. Jesus Christ becomes a strong dividing point in this world. And the faith that we have does not encompass everything. If you try to argue your way into the heart of every person who resists the faith, you'll find that what you're left with in the end is so watered down that there's no taste to it. When you say, I am a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, you automatically divide with a lot of people. Now, our intent should not be to be divisive or to tear things apart, but it's just a natural fact of who we are. 
Not everyone will believe in Jesus. Not everyone will open their arms and their heart and their life to the faith. But that's okay. Because He comes as a dividing line and a dividing rod in a world that must make a choice and a decision. All right, it's a divisive, it's also a demanding relationship. All right, look with me at 1 John chapter 3. Let's fast forward just a few verses to see that in verse 1, that it is a genetic faith, as we see in verse 9, and in verse 1, it is a family relationship. The faith that we have touches us emotionally, spiritually, but really at the heart of it all, look with me at verse 9 of chapter 3, we see that it is a genetic spiritual makeup that we have in being born again. Verse 9 says, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed, speaking of God's, remains in him, And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Remember that statement that Jesus made to Nicodemus? I tell you of a truth, you must be born again. And Nicodemus responded, how can a man be born when he is old? May I enter a second time into my mother's womb? And Jesus responds very appropriately and says, are you a teacher of Israel? And you don't know these things? No, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say that you must be born again. And he says here that whoever is born of God, his seed is in him. The word that is used there is sperma, which speaks, if we, if we look in, in our uh, natural genetic terminology, it speaks of the unique genetic DNA and destructive the structure that we have inside of us. That once that we have been born of God, that new life has been placed within us. And that person, we stay as a completely new creation with God. Brand new creation. Now, the outside may look kind of old. The outside may be not changed. Maybe things are kind of falling apart. But spiritually, at the core of who we are in our soul, oh, we are brand new. We are fitted for a life of eternity with God and uninterrupted fellowship with Him. That is where we are heading. Why? Because that is the character and the nature of your faith. It is inborn in you. It cannot be extracted. As much as I try, I look like a row. My mother looked just like this. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I have much more hair than she does. Okay, I just some of you look like you were asleep, so I had to wake you up. No, she's a very sweet lady and she called on the phone tonight. Forgive me, Mom, if you're listening. However, I become physically according to my genetic makeup. 
You know, it's easy to tell your family members because they all kind of have the same nose, kind of the same facial features. If you see a picture of one of my brothers, they're easy to spot. Even my sister, we all have a certain semblance to each other. That's good for us because when we think of ourselves as believers sometimes and and our failures and the things that really don't match up, One of the most important things that we need to remember is that the faith that we have is not just condition. It's not conditional. It is based upon God placing his seed within us. And the further we go and the more time that we spend with him, we start to look like family. Why? Because we're born into the family. Nobody can take that away from you myself or anyone else. Amen. All right. Look with me down at verse 10 of this same chapter. The ninth mark on our remembering and rewinding through this passage is the fact that we have a working or practicing faith. Look at verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. It is a working faith and a caring relationship. What I mean by working is that he says, you notice that phrase there, practicing righteousness. It doesn't mean that you perfectly execute every moment of every day, all that you know to do in the faith. In fact, you and I would say that as we try to do what's right, oftentimes we find ourselves stumbling. I mean, you're not ever going to fall unless you take a few steps. But as you take those steps, you find yourself, you may be stumbling. But you're practicing. Now, again, I mentioned that we bought my son a set of drums. And it's a catch-22. You want him to get better, but that means that he's going to have to practice. And that they're really loud. And that means that the more he practices, the better he gets, the more that I have to listen to the drums. But practice makes better. Practice makes perfect. It is a working faith. It is a work in progress. All right, let's fast forward to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they were of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Okay, we have a genetic faith, we have a working faith. In this chapter, we see that we have a discerning faith and a testable relationship. Not detestable, but a testable relationship. We have a discerning faith. This is good for us because what this means to us is that you and I don't have to swallow every hook that is placed into our water. Let's say that we're all fish and we're swimming around. Many of you are brightly colored. Many of you are, look much different than the other, but we're all swimming in the water. And the, fish, the hook comes down into the water. Not every hook, not every worm, not everything that looks like bait is actually healthy. 
And that's the whole point of fishing. You're hoping that there'll be some fish who sees a lure or a worm with a hook in it and say, oh, that looks like a good meal. And then you yank them out of the water. It requires for the fish and for the Christian discernment. Being able to look at the subtleties of the spiritual landscape that we live in and decide whether something is actually helpful or a trap or true or false. It is a discerning faith. Listen, if you're discerning about what people teach, you're doing exactly what the Bible says to do. It says in Acts that... Paul, speaking to a group of people who were known as the Bereans, that said that the Bereans were more noble than this other group of people because they searched the scriptures daily to see whether the things that were being taught were actually true. Do you know that you and I have a um, really a mandate from God to test and see whether a person is actually preaching the word? Do you know that? That when you flip through the channels and you see something on the television or maybe on the radio, that you and I have a mandate from God to test the spirits, to discern whether this is actually in accordance with what you understand from the Word of God or they're veering off. All right, verse 7. Look with me down at verse 7. Not only do we have a discerning faith, but a living faith. Beloved, or loving faith, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love. The faith that we possess, this trust, this belief that we have, is A faith that is bathed, as we mentioned earlier in the book of Revelation chapter 2, with the importance and the idea of love itself. That phrase there that says God is love could be translated God as to his absolute essence is love. Everything that we've ever known or understand about what love is in this world comes at its essence at its origin from God himself. Everything that we understand comes from that. It's a loving faith. And look with me at verse 16 and 17. It's a loving faith which produces a confident relationship. We have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we also in this world. It is a faith that is based upon a loving relationship, and that love builds confidence. The more you know a person, the more you see their activity in love, and you see the way that they present their love in a real active, dynamic way, you get to the realization that you have confidence and trust in a person. As you go in life, you find that your trust level starts to shrink 
a little bit in humanity. Many of you have great faith in human nature. I don't see many hands going up. It's hard to trust people. But there are those few people that come along that you develop a real tight relationship. And as you do so, your trust level just grows and grows and grows. And so it is with this loving faith. It produces a confident relationship. All right, look with me at 1 John chapter 5. As we mentioned just a few weeks ago, not only is this a loving faith, but it's a potent faith. Look with me at verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The faith that we have is a very potent, powerful, dynamic faith that this world cannot stop. It produces in us an unstoppable relationship with God. Who can separate us from the love of God? Death, famine, persecution, bad circumstances, absolutely zero will ever be able to separate us from the love that God has for us. But even even beyond that, as we mentioned earlier and a couple of weeks ago, the faith that overcomes here is a faith that dynamically overrules and overrides the processes that are in course around us. Oftentimes it's easy for us to to recoil and say, oh, the world's so tough. I have it so hard as a as a Christian. I'm just a, there's just a few of us around. There's so I, I, I feel all alone at work. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The faith that you have individually, collectively as the body of Christ here and around the world overcomes in every instance the world itself. It's just a matter of perspective. All right, look at verse 13. Fast forward just a little bit. And in verse 14, we see that we have a praying faith. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We mentioned this last week. And a praying faith produces An intimate relationship. Praying is simply talking to God and getting your will in line with His will and asking according to what He wants done in this world. Real intimacy in relationship. All right, verse 16 and 18, we covered last week. And it's just briefly, I'll note here that the faith that we have is also a sobering faith. He speaks about a sin leading unto death. And as we mentioned last time, this sin leading unto death is basically anything that would draw you away and leave you from the source of life, which is Jesus Christ himself. Let's wrap this up. Look with me at verse 18 of chapter 5. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. 
Finally, we have a confident faith. A confident faith. The phrase that is used in these verses is we know, or I know, or we understand. Which is a word that means not only do I have an intellectual acceptance of this, but I've gone beyond that into experience, and I know what I know, and I know that it's true. And because of that, I'm very confident in what God has to say and what I know about Him. That confidence is needed as we proceed forth and as we, you you see ourselves sort of moving out of this book and moving out into the world. There is a level of confidence that is needed because your faith and my faith will be tested almost at every turn. Every time that you stand up and say, I know that Jesus is Lord, there will be opposition against you. And that proof and that confidence that knows that it knows will carry you and I through this whole process. All right. Let's read verse 19 through 21 and we'll close. Verse 20, excuse me. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us an understanding that we may know him who is true and we who are in him who is true and in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, he ends this whole passage with this statement that you think this is the ending of your letter. In fact, some have believed that we missed the end of the letter somewhere. But I think it's very appropriate. You'll remember he was in Ephesus. It was the center of worship of the goddess Diana. In fact, you remember that famous passage in Acts where Paul is standing in the great amphitheater there in Ephesus. And they shout for the space of two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! Great is Diana of the Ephesians! Because Paul was preaching another doctrine and Paul was having an effect on the economic uh, health of the Diana, uh, Diana trading cult. Well, what is an idol? You say, well, there's American idols. Maybe an idol's a little doll. Some of you would say, well, I've made an idol out of a friend or a relationship. But an idol is something more nemesing. And I, I want to give it a, a very simple definition and help you walk away with this. An idol is a mechanism to manipulate God. That's what it's been from the beginning and what it is now. It's easy for us to say, oh, a car is an idol. No, it's not. An idol was something that was produced early on in humanity. Some type of mechanism or idea or concept or object whereby if I say the right things, if I do the right things, if I, if I, if I make this thing up in the right way, God must respond to my requests. God must respond to my request. And there are things in this world that are very superstitious, that hold a lot of promise for us. But the promise leads us away from the Lord. And anything that would cause you or or 
tempt you or I to manipulate God so that we might further our cause or our circumstances, in essence, that's really an idol. Lord, if you'll just let me have this, I will do this. Or I know that if I pray a certain way, you'll do what I ask. I know that if I go to church a certain amount of time, I know that when I ask you something, you'll do it. Or you'll be required to do so. Hey, look. Keeping ourselves from idols is very simple. It requires a very simple attitude, and it's this. We realize that God must be honored and obeyed. Honor and obedience are the real ways to insulate ourselves from idols. Father, thank you for this study. Thank you for this great book. We have learned many truths. And Lord, I pray that we could use them and apply them to our lives, that none of this would be lost, that virtue would be added to our hearts and to our minds, strength, power, endurance, Lord, that we may go out from here and live a life that is very dynamic for your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.